All right. Well, good morning. Hey, let's go ahead and dismiss kids to Children's Church. Thank you. Yeah, kids, grade six and down, we got something special for you, and you guys can head back. Thanks so much, Ad. Uh, it's great. Uh, I feel like I should introduce myself. My name's Glenn. Um, I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new in the last couple months, or like you have a short-term memory loss, you're like, sure, you're a pastor here. Yeah, great. But um, yes, I'm back from um, uh, a two-month sabbatical. Every t- Our pattern as a church is every uh, 10 years, pastors take a, a, a two-month sabbatical, and the idea behind that is similar to a Sabbath. Um, to set aside time for rest and to refocus and reflect and even to, to connect with God in kind of just a different way and at a different pace. And um, we just had an amazing time. So I'm so grateful. L- love being back. Genuinely missed um, the whole church family and, and all of you. Um, so we love being back, but also just had a, a great time. So um, a lot of you have asked kind of where were you, what were you doing? So um, I hope you guys are ready for the Pastor Glenn slideshow. Of, uh, <laughs> so, but I did want to just show you a, a couple things and, and tell you where we were because we were off for September um, and October. And so we did kind of two uh, bigger trips during that time. And one of them was we flew out and it started in Chicago um, because my favorite baseball team was playing at Wrigley Field. And so I've always kind of a bucket list for me. So we got to go there. But really what we were doing was heading on a tour of kind of the southern uh, states of the United States, a part of the, our country that is just so beautiful that we hadn't seen a whole lot of um, before. And so we went to Kentucky, where we visited the Ark Experience. So that's a full-size Noah's Ark there. Um, and if you're at all curious what uh, Noah and Mrs. Noah might have looked like, it might be something like this. I don't know for sure. <laughs> but it seemed to be something. Um, then we also, we, we visited uh, places like uh, Tennessee and Alabama. We saw some old friends and family, which was so uh, great. We went to a conference in Nashville for the Association, uh, American Association of Christian Counselors, which was super encouraging to just soak in some great teaching and information. And that was in Nashville. Then we also went to the Billy Graham Retreat Center, which is beautiful. It's in North Carolina. Um, there I am at one of Billy Graham's uh, pulpits, every pastor like has to take a picture in front of the pulpit there. It's like goosebumps kind of thing. Uh, but and we just had a great time in the Southern United States, went to the North and South Carolina, um, loved it. It was so beautiful. Um, people were so nice, but we're not moving there. So we are, feel super called um, here, love uh, what God's doing um, here and, and feel called to be a part of California. So anyways, so we were there, then we came back, we were home for about 10 days. One of the really uh, special things for me was I was able to do kind of some solo time where I took a few days just by myself and went up to the mountains and then later on over to the beach, which was just really um, special for me. But then in October, Janie and I got a chance to do uh, a trip that was in the, the our goal was to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. So this was kind of rude because you guys were all here studying the book of Acts and like where Paul went. We were there, you guys. We were, saw like all those sites. And so um, we went to places like Philippi, which is one of the places where the, Paul first brings the gospel into Europe. And we were in the, that spot. We went to Thessalonica and Berea, some of these other spots. Um, this is actually Corinth. Fascinating because this is the temple of Apollo. And in the back there is the 
the mountain where the temple of Aphrodite stood and just kind of was overshadowed that whole city. And yet Paul comes and brings the good news and transformation takes place. We were just so encouraged by really just the power of the good news of Jesus. And so we saw it in, you know, firsthand where, where it first went out. Um, we were in Athens, of course, where it's just amazing to see buildings that are 2,500 years old. And uh, we were in Ephesus. This is one of the places where, oh, we were in Rome as well. I'm very moving to see uh, so many things, including the Colosseum where, where Christians were persecuted and even put to death. So uh, stirring. And then I think next we were in Ephesus. Um, this is one of the places where, again, Paul and others might have stood and preached. And so it was just um, amazing to us. And so we're so grateful to have experienced those things. I know we've, I feel really spoiled um, and blessed to be able to do those things. I learned so much. I hope that some of this stuff will trickle out um, and be helpful to our church as really the Bible just came even more and more alive um, to me. So hopefully um, we'll get a chance to hear about some of those things. Hey, I was also going to tell you one of the really fun things that I get to do on sabbatical is to go visit other churches because you never get to do that when you're a pastor um, because we work on Sundays. But uh, I was able to visit a, a few different churches, and as, I didn't necessarily do this on purpose, but I visited a, like a variety of different churches. I went to like this kind of this big mega church in, in the Reno area, and then after that we went to kind of a young, kind of like hipster church in, in Birmingham, Alabama. I went to a predominantly um, African-American, very large church in um, uh, South Stockton, had a great time of fellowship down there, went to kind of a, a blue-collar recovery church in East Lodi. Uh, last week we were in Midtown Sacramento, very diverse church. And, and to me, it was just so cool to see so many different expressions of the body of Christ. You know, style might be a di- little different, look might be a little different, but that same heart and that same message. And it was so encouraging to me, one, just to be a part of the bigger body of Christ, but also then to remember to, to be a part of this, this church and just what a blessing it was. And um, we've got a full message, so I need to jump into that. But would you join me in showing your appreciation and my appreciation to, to our church staff? That was amazing while I was gone. I didn't worry about a thing. And um, obviously, Steve Steele just did an amazing job. So grateful um, for him, but really the whole team and, and not just even the ones that preached. It was so great to hear from Tim and Ian and Stephen, uh, but the whole staff, the leaders, so great. Um, all that to say, thank you. Good to see you. Glad to be back. Grab your Bibles and grab your message notes because we're going to jump right in. We're actually uh, beginning a brand new message series today. Um, All year long, our theme has been about the Holy Spirit. It's been called Alive in Us. And we've been studying what it means to not only know more and understand more about the Holy Spirit, but really the goal is to experience the Holy Spirit in our real life. And so throughout the year, we've dug into all kinds of different things. We started with like a theology of the Holy Spirit. We've covered the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the gift gifts of the Holy Spirit. We looked at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And for the next four weeks in November, we want to just get intensely practical and talk about what it means to walk in the Spirit in some of the most common everyday but really important parts of life. We want to look at kind of the nitty-gritty of what it means to walk in the Spirit in kind of our daily life. And so this morning, our topic is going to be the Holy Spirit alive 
in my family. What does it mean to experience the Holy Spirit in my family? Whatever your family looks like, we have all different uh, sizes and shapes and kinds of families that are represented here. Um, Whether you're a a more traditional family or you're single or uh, grandparent, whatever it is, uh, what does it mean to have the Holy Spirit alive in my family? And family, we believe, is the right place to begin because uh, of God's foundational institution when it comes to a personal and societal good, is going to be marriage and family. We see that the, the heart of, uh, of, of any society is family, and the gift of family is so foundational that it comes first. If you think about this, before there's ever a nation or a government, there's a family. Before there is business or a school, there's a family. Even before God calls Abraham to be the father of the Jewish people, there is a family. Even long before Jesus institutes the idea of church and how important church is, there is a family. And so we say that it's this kind of a foundational uh, institution for bringing personal and societal um, good And uh, what we see is that society uh, is so dependent on family. And when um, family struggles oftentimes and falls apart, oftentimes the society um, is not far behind it. So what we're going to do today is we want to start just at the very beginning uh, by looking at God's original design for marriage and family, kind of lay that foundation. And so to answer what is God's original design, let's start at the very beginning. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. You might want to just open your Bible to page 1, Genesis 1 verse 26, where we read this. This is now the sixth day of creation And God says, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. A couple verses put together there. And then when you get to the end of day six, God looks at all that he's made. And for the first time, not only does he say that it's good, but God says it's very good. So the starting point is God's creation of a man and a woman. And then in Genesis 2, we read that they come together specifically as husband and wife, and they fulfill one another in a way that nothing else in the creation uh, really did. And God says, I want you to rule over and to steward what I made, and I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And so you have this foundational description of marriage and family right in those very uh, opening couple chapters of Scripture. Theologians have looked at this and looked at kind of the responsibility and the purpose of family and said, you could kind of call it three things. And so let's talk about those. First, uh, the responsibility is to reflect, to reproduce, and to rule. So first, responsibility for the family and for marriage is to reflect God's image to the world. God says, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. In other words, God says, let's make them look like us. Not necessarily an outward appearance, but God says, when people look at these ones made in my image, there's going to be something that reflects who we are to the world because there's going to be made in the, uh, the image. And so we see that it says, God says, let us make in our image. And in the very nature of God is he's God is one, but he's also Trinity. He's Father, Son, 
and spirit. And in that trinity, it's kind of hard for us to wrap our mind around, but one of the things we see is this incredible unity and sacrificial love that God has even within his own nature. So in other words, God sends the son uh, full of love and and the, the son loves and glorifies the father and lives to please the father. And then comes the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to point people to the son. He's going to point people to the father and kind of round and round it goes in kind of this perfect uh, unity and sacrificial love. And so God says, if you're going to be made in my image, one of the things that especially family should represent to the world is this idea of unity and sacrificial love. That's true for, you know, every part of our life, but especially we see that in family. Next, God says, uh, our responsibility is to reproduce. And specifically, he says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Now, of course, we know not every person is going to be married, and there's great design, and God's work in the single life, and and plays an especially important role in the church, and and those kind of things. There's also some couples that either can't or choose not to have family. But in the original design, kind of the, the big picture is that a man and a woman would come together, and they would have children. And the very first reason for this is God says, I want to spread my image around the world. So I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That there would be a whole bunch of little image bearers of God all around on the world. Let me just say, parents, especially those of you that have kids at home right now, this is a really helpful reminder to us because it's really easy to think, you know, what I'm doing, I'm raising, you know, my goal is to raise the, you know, the best athlete I can so they can get a college scholarship or, you know, to raise the best student who's going to be the valedictorian or, you know, the greatest musician, whatever kind of your fantasy for your kids might be. And it's not like those things can't be important, but what God says The first priority is to raise people that reflect my image to the world. That's the most important thing that we can do and we can train our kids um, to do. So he says, reflect, reproduce, and then finally says, I want you to rule. That is to exercise godly dominion and care over everything that God made. It's God, God saying, you be my hands and my feet for my glory in this world. So I go over all that because... You see that, and it makes you want to just kind of step back and see God's plan and place for the family in the world. And it it should make us say, wow, this is kind of a a big deal. This idea behind marriage and family is, is significant. And you know what? Not only do we see this in Scripture, but we feel it in our life. Because don't you know that, like, there is nothing that is more emotionally tugging in our life than family, right? It's almost disproportionately powerful for both good and bad. When there's joy in our family, we feel it. When there's loss or dysfunction or brokenness in our family, there's not much that we feel deeper than that. And I believe a big part of that is because God's put that in us. God's put that desire for something good in us, and that is this thing for family. And so God puts us there and... um, puts that there, and he says, um, we're not just trying to get through life. We're not just trying to, you know, people that I share a, a house with. This is something that I've got a plan for. And I guess maybe one of my biggest takeaways today is for us to, to realize that whatever your role in the family it is, whether you're a grandparent, a child, an aunt, an uncle, a brother, sister, whatever it is, 
Your role is significant and your role is purpose. There's on purpose. There's responsibility. But it's not just responsibility that we see in creation. We also see that, that there is reward. And the reward, quite simply put, is God says when you kind of do things this way, the reward is going to be blessing. And in those opening chapters of the Bible, we see that the blessing is intimacy with one another. There's unity. There's fulfillment. There's security. There's love. And God looks at all that he made and he says not only is that good, but it's very good. All right. That's God's design for marriage and family. However, has anyone else noticed that sometimes it's kind of hard to live up to God's design. Anyone else ever recognize that in these areas it doesn't always go exactly the way we, we think that it should? This stuff can be tough. In fact, I was thinking about it just in, in my own life. I'm, I literally have the best wife in the world. She's the amazing. We had the greatest time together. I could not uh, love her more. I have got three awesome kids and now a daughter-in-law that are just all great humans. We love them. They're so fun. They bring me so much joy and and all these things. And I don't know if you've heard, um, but actually in April, I'm a guy who's actually going to come a grandfather uh, for the first time. Yeah. So thank you to Andrew and Jessica. And so the, the point I'm trying to make is, you know, I'm so blessed. They're so, all, it's so incredible. And yet, There is literally nothing harder in my life that I've done than family. As as great as it is, it's difficult and it comes with challenges. And again, we feel that. We feel the emotion of that. In fact, as you look at kind of family in the Bible, it would actually be comical if it wasn't so tragic. But the idea is this. So you got Genesis 1 and 2 that we just talked about. God paints this great picture and he says it's good and this is what family should look like. And then sin enters in and things begin to fall apart. And they begin to fall apart maybe most tragically in the family. So right away when sin enters in, Adam and Eve, the very first thing is the first married couple start to blame each other. And so some of that original intimacy that they were supposed to experience, already they begin to to experience some brokenness in that. But not just that, Adam and Eve go on and they have kids. Um, They have two uh, boys that are listed, uh, Cain and Abel. And did anybody ever, did anybody besides me, like, did you ever struggle with your kids fighting with each other? Did your kids like ever, wasn't that the worst Right? Well, if you ever struggle with that, I, I'm about to make you feel much better about your situation. Because Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel, Cain gets so frustrated and jealous and angry at his younger brother that he kills him. He actually ends his life. And family kind of goes downhill from there. Because things progress, and then you get to Genesis chapter 6, and it says that God looks, and all that he sees across the world is evil. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to start over again. We're going to start this again. And how is he going to do it? He's going to do it through a family. This time he's going to use Noah's family. And so he tells Noah to build an ark and do the animals and all these things, and God blesses and saves Noah's family in a miraculous way, and then they come to the end of that, and, and Noah gets off the ark, and one of the very first things we see is that Noah is drunk and naked, and there's conflict that rises in his family with his kids. And so then you get to Genesis chapter 12, and in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham, and he sees great faith in Abraham. So he says, Abraham, I'm going to be a blessing to you, I'm going to give a blessing to you, and a blessing 
therefore the whole world is going to come through you, and it's going to come how? Through your family. There's going to be those that come behind you that, that are going to be a, a great blessing to the world. So Abraham and Sarah are like, great, we're, you know, we're all about it. Well, Abraham and Sarah are already starting to get pretty old, and before long they look at each other and they say, we're getting really old at this point, and we don't have any kids. So what is going on with this promise? And so they get impatient and they get impatient and they start to doubt what God was, was doing. And so Sarah says, well, hey, why don't we do this? It's not God's original design, but why don't you sleep with my maidservant? And then you can have a child uh, through, uh, through her. And so Abraham has his first child with Hagar. And she, uh, that child's name is Ishmael. Ishmael. The next thing, surprise, surprise, God's true to his word. Sarah, even though she's 90 years old, does get pregnant, and they have a son, and that son's name is Isaac. And if you look at the family line of Ishmael and the family line of Isaac, to this day, 4,000 years, the conflict is so deep in those families that it's the thing that we see in our headlines every day today, that conflict still going on. And it continues with Abraham's family. They're the, they're the, the forefathers of the, the nation, but they, they trick each other. They manipulate each other. They backstab each other. You even get to David, King David, the greatest king of them all. And he has a heart for God, and yet still he struggles with his family. He steals Uriah's wife, and then his kids are a mess. Things are so bad that uh, David's grandkids actually lead the nation into a civil war. They fight so bad with one another that ultimately it leads to both sides being taken into exile as slaves. And the point I'm trying to make is this. Family is difficult and it can be messy. And so here is the main idea of the morning. If we catch anything else, please catch this. We have to come to understand that God's good plan for your family is worth fighting for. And it is worth fighting for with a great vigilance. Well, you say, how do I do that? The greatest weapon that we have to fight for our family is the Holy Spirit alive in our family. You see, God has not given us just a plan and a picture for our family, but he's given us the power to daily live those things out. That's why some of the most powerful verses, I think, and for sure in the Old Testament, but in all of the Bible about family are like Joshua 24, 15, where Joshua has been conquering the, the promised land, but different people are, some are starting to follow idols, some are starting to fall away. But Joshua says this, he says, hey, you guys are, do whatever you want to do, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. There's this attitude of, I'm going to fight for what God has called me to. Later on in the book of Nehemiah, they've been into exile and then they're coming back and they're building back the city again and they're facing all kinds of opposition. And some of us know what it means to face opposition in your family. This is what Nehemiah says about that kind of opposition. He says, don't be afraid of them. Why? Because remember the Lord who is great and awesome. You've got the Holy Spirit on your side. You've got the Lord who is great and awesome. And do what? Fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives in your homes. And we need to have that same willingness to fight for the good plan and purpose that God has for your family, whatever that family looks like. So, how do we do that? How do we fight for our families? We do it by the power 
of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a number of different ways, more than we could get to on 10 sermons, that the Holy Spirit can work in our lives and work in our families. Daily, we need to be seeking God. We need to be studying his word. We need to be in fellowship, places where we can, can, can learn and, and see God's spirit and, and, and see the ways that God's spirit wants to work in our families. But for the rest of our time this morning, for the short time that we have, I actually want us to focus on one kind of narrow, specific way that we can see God's work or God's uh, spirit alive in our family, and that is through one of the fruits of the Spirit. Because whenever God is at work, whenever, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit is at work, we're going to see his fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And the place that we want to start today is one that many of us would say is the most difficult, and that is with patience. With patience. One of the ways that we can see God's work in our family is through patience. Now, when I say patience, probably most of us think about some obvious things that we could do to be more patient. Like, I could slow down with my family. I could not lose my temper so quickly. I could show more grace. I could, you know, give time to listen to the other person. And and all of those kind of everyday, moment-by-moment expressions of patience are really great and valuable. But what I want to do for just the rest of our time together is I want us to actually think about patience on a much bigger level and kind of a, a, with a, a longer-term perspective. Because we've talked about this many times before when we've talked about patience. The Greek word for patience is a, a compound word. It's the word macrothumos. You often see it translated as long, macrothumos, suffering. Long suffering. And the idea is patience isn't a, just a little bit about I'm going to be patient for these five minutes, these ten minutes, but it's that I'm going to be patient for the long run. Macrothumos is willing to hang tough to stand firm, to not give up, even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of something we don't like to talk about very often, which is suffering. In fact, an illustration of this uh, that I think is a helpful one is how a pearl is formed. I literally remember as a kid loving to learn how that a pearl was made because it's made by this little oyster. And this oyster is just hanging out doing its oyster thing, and a little grain of sand gets caught inside the inside of, a, of the, the oyster, and it starts to irritate and kind of rub against that, that oyster. And the oyster wants to get rid of that irritant, right? And so it does whatever it can, and it, you know, prays every little oyster prayer that it can pray, and, but nothing happens, right? Anybody relate to this? Sometimes the irritation doesn't just go away. And so the oyster starts to do the only thing that it knows to do. It starts to produce this kind of milky substance called aragonite. And this aragonite begins to cover what's originally just this little grain of sand that is irritating this oyster. And little by little, it covers it, and it covers it, and it covers it. And finally, eventually, it's not just this irritant, but it's this beautiful, valuable pearl that people pay big money for. And it would only come about through the long-suffering patience of that oyster. And I want to suggest, when the Holy Spirit is alive in our family, that kind of long-term, gracious, patient approach, long-suffering approach, will be true in our life. 
So I want to just share a scripture with you, and I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 5, because James gives us this beautiful picture of what this patience uh, might look like. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11 says this. James says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged, and the judge is standing at your doors. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience, in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and you have seen that the Lord finally brought what the Lord finally brought about because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And so this passage is obviously not specifically about family, um, but what I want us to see is some principles in here that if we want to see the the Holy Spirit alive in our family, these are things we can do. And the first principle is this. You might want to jot these down. I need to believe that God's plan for my family is good and it's worth fighting for. I, I need to believe that my family, whatever role I have, is worth fighting for. Because when times get tough, and I want to quit, when I'm frustrated and it just seems easier to throw in the towel, and maybe I'm not going to leave, but I'm going to close myself off, or I'm going to you know, be stubborn, or I'm going to withdraw into myself, or I'm going to somehow withdraw. When I feel that, uh, those times, I need to remember that, you know what? God's got something good, and it's worth fighting for. James' James's example is be patient until the Lord's coming. And the reason he does this is he's telling the people, don't forget that there's something good out there. Because the people that James is writing to are facing legitimate persecution and struggle and, and violence and all sorts of things. And James writes and he says, you know what, hang on. Be patient because the Lord is coming. There's something good out there. God's got a plan, and he's working it. Now, that didn't happen in their lifetime like they thought that it would, but the point is the same, that God is working a plan. And whether it's in this lifetime or or the next lifetime, God is working a plan, and the Lord is coming. And the same principle is true as we approach family. If the story of the Bible shows us anything, it's that family can be dysfunctional and difficult, but it's worth fighting for because God's got a plan. When I do weddings uh, with couples and I meet with couples, even if they want to um, kind of write their own wedding vows, I say, well, you know, if you do that, you got to at least include these kind of promises to each other. Something along the lines of for better or worse, or whether we're rich or whether we're poor, or whether we're in health or we're in sickness till death to us part. Because the idea behind this is it's not about circumstances, but it's about this covenant relationship that I'm willing to long suffer for, whether it's good or it's bad. Parents, as you think about raising kids, as I look back on raising kids, would you not agree that I think God almost gives us kids to teach us patience? Um, Because my kids are awesome, but I look back and I can't tell you how many times I thought it can't get harder than this. Raising kids is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I think it can't get harder than potty training, you know, a strong-willed toddler whose favorite word is no, right? 
And you're like, oh, what, what, how are we ever going to do this? And then, you know what, you, you get through it. And you're like, oh, okay. And then they, it's time for elementary school. And that's great. But then there's a lot of challenges that go with that. Anybody ever feel like you're just like a taxi driver for your kids? Or uh, anybody else ever like find themselves at the store on a Sunday night about 8 o'clock buying supplies for an assignment that they forgot to tell you about? You're like, oh, this is crazy. You know, they're driving me crazy. And then they graduate from that and they become teenagers. And I just love other people's teenagers. Um, (laughs) But I remember when my kids were teenagers, I'm like, what happened? What happened to these like sweet kids that were here like five minutes ago? And now, you know, they're rolling their eyes and all this uh, stuff. And and I remember thinking, oh, there's, is there anything harder than that? But then they graduate and they go off and, and, and we're empty nesters right now and call me crazy. But I think we worry about our kids as adults more than we ever did when they were little. And the point I'm trying to make is there's a process to it and there's a struggle to it and we need the Holy Spirit all along in every part of that. And it takes a long view to remember that when I'm in the middle of it and it feels so hard that God is still at work and there's something on the other side and God's got a good design. And it's just the way life goes if we can macrothumos, if we can be resilient and suffer long. Second thing we can see in this passage is we believe that, uh, that will help us see the Holy Spirit is we believe that God is at work even when I can't see it, right? James gives us the example of a farmer and a farmer has to wait for the crop to grow. Now we know that uh, for any uh, great crop to be produced, there are some things that a farmer can do. A farmer can get the soil ready, the farmer can plant the seed just right, water it just right, fertilize it. There are several things that the farmer can do to help the crop grow. There are also some things that the farmer cannot do. The farmer can never make the seed grow. The farmer can never produce the fruit that is between the seed and God. Now, why this is significant is because in our life with our family, it's really easy to get at a point where we feel just stuck or we look at maybe a a child or a relationship or, or something and we think, What's wrong? This is just not going the way that it should. This, this seed is not producing the fruit that I, think it, that I think it should. And we look at that and we think, you know, what's wrong with them? Or a lot of us look at it and say, what's wrong with me? I've got to be the worst parent uh, of all time. And yet, someone once shared, and I think this is really valuable, a lot of times we approach these situations more like a mechanic than a farmer. And the difference is this. If you're a mechanic and you're in this car and you start to hear a rattle or a problem with this car, what do you do? You pull that thing over, you pull out every tool you've got and you begin to wrench on that thing. And you're tightening this and loosening this and pounding on that because you want to fix that thing that is broken. A farmer, on the other hand, if they've got a seed and it's not doing exactly what they wanted to do, what it wanted to do, the the very worst thing it could do is pull that seed up and try to fix it and take care of it. What is the only thing that a farmer can do? Get on their knees and pray to the God who makes the fruit grow. Now, sure, maybe they need to adjust the water a little bit or change the fertilizer or something like that, but it recognizes that God is at work even when I don't see it. And and students and and, teachers uh, kids, the same is true for you. Believe it or not, your parents aren't perfect and they need your patience too. 
We all suffer long together. And then finally, uh, as we move towards communion, uh, the third thing that the Holy Spirit um, patience means is that I commit to remain faithful to God's design even when things are difficult, no matter what. You see, James gives us the example of the, the farmer, but he also gives us the example of the prophet. And, and what are the prophets? The prophets are the ones that remain faithful to God when no one else understands them. When they feel persecuted, when they feel misunderstood, James 5 says the prophets, what do they do? They just stand firm. They persevere. And my encouragement to you today is that the Holy Spirit can give you the strength to do just that whether it's in your family or whatever area it is, to hang tough, to long suffer. Because when we do, God's blessing will come. One of the great examples of this principle that we see is the cross and the resurrection. Because Jesus went through and endured the suffering of the cross before it led to the victory and the joy of the resurrection on the third day. And so on the third day, Jesus experiences all of this joy. And have any of you guys ever wondered why God resurrected Jesus, why Jesus was resurrected on the the third day? I mean, granted, you wanted to make sure that there was enough time for everybody to know that he was like definitely dead. So there was that. But that could have happened on the second day, right? And it would have been just as big a miracle uh, if that happened on the second day. And think of all of the anxiety and all of the stress that it would have saved those disciples and those people that loved him if Jesus would have just come back on the second day. But God doesn't resurrect him on the second day. He resurrects him on the third day. Why? Because that middle day is where so much of life is truly lived between the suffering and before the victory. But God is still at work. And a lot of us, whether it's in our family or whatever, let's just be honest, we're in that second day. And we don't know how it's going to turn out, but we know that God is with us and God is at work. And do you know, the Bible is full of third day stories. Abraham is told that he's going to have to sacrifice his son Isaac. And, and so he takes Isaac and he starts to, to march him up the, the hill. And for two days he does that until finally you get to the third day and God provides the sacrifice and a way out. There's a season when Esther has to pray and fast because there's going to be literally a genocide of the Jewish people. And so she fasts and she prays and she wonders what's going to happen. And when does God show up? Not on the second day, but on the third day. Joshua is getting ready to lead the people into the promised land and and God says I'm going to be with you and I'm going to go before you but they don't know what it's going to look like and so they they consecrate themselves and they wait and they pray until finally not on the second day but on the third day God parts the, the waters and they're able to go in and begin to live in the promised land. And so I think it's just so good and appropriate for us to end this service with a time of communion. Because communion reminds us of both the suffering and the victory of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And I always think of those disciples who gathered together with Jesus on that night and they had no idea what was ahead of them. They, they knew that things might get a little bit tough, but they didn't know how tough. They didn't know what God was calling them to, but Jesus did. And so Jesus gives them some things and he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body given for you. 
And then after a little bit, he takes the cup. And after giving thanks for that, he says, this is my blood poured out for you. The blood of a new covenant given for you because Jesus knew that they had big things to do. God had great plans for them. And sometimes it was gonna be easy, but sometimes it was gonna be tough. And so Jesus promises, not only I will be with you, but I will fill you and I will go before you. And so whatever you are facing today, whether it's in your family or whatever it is, hear Jesus' invitation to you to not face that alone. You may be in the second day, but I promise you the third day is coming. God is good. God's got a plan, whether it's in this life or the next. And so we're going to celebrate communion as we kind of traditionally do here or often do here. Um, We're going to have uh, our high school students who are with us are going to pass the the bread out. And once you've received the bread, if you would just kind of hold on to that, um, we'll take that together. Um, Then we'll uh, pray and pass out the cup. And and then our worship team will be leading us in a song. And and you're welcome to take the cup and then uh, join in at at your um, pleasure as well. And then one thing we just often say here is that we celebrate at First Baptist an open communion, meaning that you do not have to be a member of this church uh, to celebrate communion here. You are invited. Um, but what we do see is the pattern in the, the, the Bible is that this is for uh, believers. These are for people who are, are following after Jesus. And if you wouldn't put yourself in that category, I'm not trying to push you away or saying you are uninvited. What I'm trying to do is invite you that maybe today is the day that you start to become a follower of Jesus. And you just pray that prayer, Jesus, come into my life and I'm ready to begin following after you. And then you take that bread and you take that cup as a reminder of God's grace in your life. So first of all, I want to invite uh, Logan Sweetman to come on up. And Logan's uh, one of our high school students and he's going to pray for uh, the bread. Thanks, Logan. Uh, Hello, everybody. I invite you guys to um, be ready to pray. So um, if you guys could do that, that would be amazing. All right. Um, Lord, I pray that while each of us are here individually, we shift our mindset during this time of communion to become one community, a church family. That with this bread or cracker, that represents the physical body that you sacrificed for each and every one of us, we would be joyous about the fact that you are the lamb that was slain. And even through the second day, we will forever be grateful and saved because of that choice. Amen.